Hello, and welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.3, Ming China and the Silver Mountain. At the beginning of the 17th century, the Ming Empire was the largest and most powerful on earth. It had a population of around 230 million, far larger than all of the countries of Europe combined. It had an economy and level of technology to match. State government apparatus and bureaucracy were far more effective than their contemporary states in Europe. Ming's bureaucratic exam system, which they had inherited from previous dynasties and refined for their own purposes, would be borrowed by the British Empire hundreds of years later. But the Ming weren't invulnerable. And, as with just about everything important in life, their fall can't be chalked up to just a single cause. The 17th century was filled with decades of war, famine, and disease across the globe. The eventual heirs of the Ming, the Manchu Qing Dynasty, played a big part of the story as well. But, more on them next episode. In this episode, I want to talk about how a silver mine, high in the Andes Mountains, helped create a giant economic crisis in Ming China that forced families to sell their farms and children to pay debts and left the Ming economically paralyzed in the face of peasant revolts and the aforementioned Manchu invaders. When the Ming came to power in the 14th century, they inherited a money supply in complete disarray. After Taizu founded the dynasty, he and his ministers worked hard to reform the Chinese state in the last few decades of the 1300s. At first, they tried to implement a currency system of paper money and copper coins. Commercial transactions in silver were banned, and taxes were mandated to be paid in government-issued paper currency. This wasn't a bad idea on the face of it, but the Ming were better at conquering than they were at monetary policy, and it was a complete failure. There wasn't enough copper coins for people to use, and they printed more paper money than the system could bear. Silver continued to be used in commercial activities in spite of the official prohibition. In the early 1400s, the Yongli Emperor, who we talked about a lot last episode, switched paths and reopened silver mines under the government's control. By 1550, the Ming Empire had a bimetallic currency system. State-minted copper coins were used mostly for local transactions and silver for long-distance trade and for paying taxes to Beijing. Silver was valued by weight and minted into ingots or bullion by private mints. The standard unit of weight for silver in the Ming China was the taiyao, which is the equivalent of about 40 grams. That's 11 taiyao per pound. But, in reality, pieces of silver came in different sizes, a little larger or smaller, with different levels of purity. There was no universal standard. For simplicity, I'm going to refer to everything by weight and taiyao's as a quote-unquote standard unit of reference and conversion but know that this wasn't the reality on the ground. The supply of silver in the empire was determined by private merchants and market forces. That is to say, it was determined by its price and availability. Copper coins were used for everyday transactions over short distances. These coins were minted by government-owned mints and entered the marketplace through government purchases, something Chinese states had done for thousands of years even before the Qin and Han dynasties. These coins had holes punched in the middle so they could be collected and put on strings of a thousand coins for larger transactions. 
copper was sometimes used for large purchases in local contexts, but its usefulness was inherently limited by its low value to weight ratio. It was simply much easier to move and store silver than the copper coins. In the mid-1500s, the Ming began converting all tax payments owed to the state, poll taxes, land taxes, corvée labor, and tribute payments from client states, into payments denominated in silver. Before these reforms, you could pay taxes in silver, copper, or in kind. After the reforms, if you only had copper coins, you had to buy silver at a money shop, or pay your tax collector enough that he could have it converted before sending it on to his superior. The goal of the reforms was to simplify everything and increase tax revenues. By 1570, silver made up 90% of taxes received by the central government. This new silver-based tax was called the single whip tax. Single whip reforms drove up demand for silver, both in China and across Southeast Asia and Korea, as those states had to convert all of their tribute payments into silver. This trend toward a silver-based money supply coincided with a growing population. By the year 1400, and in the shadow of the Black Death, Ming China had about 70 million people. Its population recovered and grew and grew. How high, though, is a matter of debate. I've seen estimates from 160 million to 250 million. Either way, it's safe to say the Ming China was by far the most populous polity in the world at that time. Yields of rice, the most important grain in China, increased as new varieties and techniques improved. More land came under cultivation. Long-distance trade of grain and other bulk goods always fairly common in China compared to other parts of the world, increased. As the population grew, so did the economic output. More people means you need not only more food, but more clothes and everything else a person uses. In the 15th and 16th centuries, economic production tended to rise at about the same rate as population growth. Productivity growth was very slow to non-existent. When you have a growing population and economy, you also hope to see a growing amount of available currency. All else being equal, the amount of money available needs to keep up with economic activity in order to avoid deflation. It's more commonly understood that having too much currency can lead to price increases, but the opposite is also true. Shortages of money can also make trade in general much more difficult. As population rose in the 15th and 16th centuries, Chinese silver mines just couldn't keep up. Between 1436 and 1520, for example, Chinese silver mines produced an average of 50,000 tiles, or does not even a ton of silver per year, which was a drop in the bucket compared to what an economy of that size required. Silver is a fairly soft metal, so some not insignificant amount of silver was being lost every year due to simple wear and tear. The demand for silver rose and rose and created a giant vacuum that sucked up whatever silver came within reach. This vacuum soon found a deep reservoir of silver upon which to draw, new American and Japanese silver mines. Columbus's 1492 voyage created the first regular and permanent connection between the eastern and western hemispheres of the globe. I think that voyage was the single most consequential event in human history since Homo sapiens successfully settled outside of Africa. That's not to say Columbus the person is the most important person or someone who is worth celebrating today. 
But the joining of the hemispheres in permanent contact created the world in which we live today. Tiny insects scurrying among the corpses. To recap, Columbus had a theory that the planet Earth was quite a bit smaller than it actually is. He theorized that if one sailed west from Europe, they could reach China and the riches of East Asia in the ships of his day. Many learned men of Europe said he was wrong. The planet, they said, is far too large, and no ship can make such a long voyage. Those guys were right, of course, and Columbus was wrong. But for complicated reasons that we'll examine in great detail in future seasons, the monarchs of Spain granted their approval for the voyage. Columbus raised money from private investors, and off he went and ran smack into the Americas. He didn't make it to China, obviously. With hindsight, we can actually say that he arrived in a region, that is the Caribbean, that's significantly further from China than the Iberian Peninsula is. But he set off a chain reaction of events that brought Europe, America, China, and the rest of the world smashing together. By the later part of the 1500s, European traders were regularly making their way to China and other destinations in South and East Asia. Two routes developed one south, and then east around the Horn of Africa, and the other, straight across the Pacific from Spanish America to Manila, which Spain claimed in 1571. For an entire century, from about 1540 to 1640, silver was far more expensive in China than elsewhere in the world. Silver drove global trade and finance during this period. Silver powered some of the fastest growing states of the age and the disruption of the silver supply in the 1630s and 1640s created the financial crisis that helped bring an end to the Ming Dynasty. The easiest way to see this is to look at the relative price of gold to silver. If you wanted to buy an ounce of gold in Spain during this century, it was going to cost you about 13 ounces of silver. In Guangzhou, on the other hand, you could buy an ounce of gold for only 6 ounces of silver. As you moved closer to China, the relative price differences changed accordingly. An ounce of gold in India cost about 9 ounces of silver. In Japan and Persia, it was 10. The value shifted a bit, depending on your time and place, but the pattern remained the same for nearly a century. If you could sell a boatload of silver to China from Spain or one of its colonies in the Western Hemisphere, you'd double your money. Silver was also a reliable trade good because it was so fungible. It could be traded for just about anything, and it had near-universal appeal and demand. Traders importing silver into China didn't have to worry about a glut of silver flooding the market the way they might with another product that had a more limited demand, like furs or clocks. Those were other popular things that the Europeans sold in China. Chinese traders were obviously excited to get their hands on the silver. They themselves could also get much better prices selling things to Europeans in Manila than in domestic markets. Silk, bought for 100 silver tile in Guangzhou, could be sold to a Spanish merchant for 200 tile. Spanish merchant could then sell the silk back home for 300 tile, which was about the cost of production for silk cloth in Spain. In addition to silk, Europeans bought porcelain, lacquered ware, cotton cloth, sugar, tea, and much more. That is to say, they were buying items of material value in daily life. Trade with China produced huge value for Europeans in two ways. The arbitrage on the silver and taking advantage of advanced Chinese technology 
infrastructure, and skilled labor that allowed China to produce such a wide variety of goods for far cheaper than they could be produced in Europe at that time. Suffice it to say, during the 16th and 17th centuries, European traders exported a lot of silver to China. So, where did all the silver come from? Most of it wasn't being mined in Europe. There had actually been a general shortage of silver and gold bullion in Europe during the 15th century. Silver mining in Germany and war booty from the early Spanish imperial adventures in Mexico helped relieve some of this, but things didn't really reverse until the Spanish found the mountain of Potosi, the most important silver mine in the world during the 16th and early 17th centuries. During this era, the name Potosi became synonymous with wealth from Seville to Istanbul to Beijing. In the alternate history, where everyone just followed the Portuguese around Africa and no one tried to sail west across the Atlantic, who knows how long it would have taken for Europeans to find something the Chinese would be interested in buying from them. Potosi, known to the Spanish as Cerro Rico, Silver Mountain, is a peak that reaches 15,689 feet in the Andes Mountains, in what is now the country of Bolivia. Potosi was accidentally discovered in 1545 by a Quechua silver miner named Diego Gulapa while he was searching the mountain for a shrine dedicated to the local Huaca, a spirit. Potosi had the world's single richest silver deposit, a vein of silver that was 300 feet long, 300 feet deep, and 1,300 feet wide, and so pure up to 50% that the Spanish had to adjust their processing techniques to avoid boiling the silver away. Over the next century, this mountain would produce almost half of the world's silver, and much of it went to China. The human toll of mining the silver from Potosi was horrific. The Spanish viceroy adopted the Incan practice of compelling labor from subject peoples for their own purposes. Tens, or possibly hundreds of thousands, died from their work in the mines, support industries, and walking the hundreds of miles to and from their villages to perform said work. Despite the high mortality rates, mining at Potosi created what was almost certainly the largest boom town of all time. At its height, in 1610s, the town of Potosi sported a population of around 160,000 people. Remember, this settlement didn't exist until silver mining began in the late 1540s. Potosi was built at around 13,400 feet of elevation, making it one of the highest cities in the world. I don't know if you've ever been to a high altitude location, but it's not a particularly easy place to support large populations. It's pretty hard to grow food up that high, even for a civilization like the native Andean people who have been thriving at high altitudes for millennia. Today, the highest major city in the world, El Alto, which is also in Bolivia, is at basically the same height, so we're talking about as high as large human settlements go. For several decades, Potosi was the largest city in the Americas and rivaled the largest cities in Europe at that time, London, Amsterdam, and Paris. It was larger than any city in Spain. Pretty much everything from food to fuel to clothing to iron and feather beds had to be carted in usually across the Andes for hundreds of miles. At Potosi's height in the 1610s, the settlement of Tuchumen, 600 miles to the south, sent 4,000 cattle to slaughter and 60,000 mules 
packed with all kinds of supplies. Onway journey from Lima on the coast took two and a half months. Potosi was also among the most cosmopolitan cities at the time. Chris Lane, whose work I'm relying upon for much of this, writes that Andean women ran the open-air markets, selling everything from produce grown in the valleys below to silks from China and Venetian glassware and Indian cottons. Enslaved African men worked in the royal mint. Street fights broke out among Basques and Extremadurans. There were communities from Portugal, the Netherlands, and Italy. A few East Asian slaves were brought to Potosi in the 1610s. Potosi was a global city. Getting a handle on how much silver Potosi actually produced is hard. Smuggling was rampant, and it makes reconstructing trade flows difficult. Some of the silver went directly from Potosi to Acapulco, and then across the Pacific to Manila. Some silver traveled to Sevilla, only to be smuggled to Portugal. Silver was smuggled overland from Peru and down to the Rio de Plata, to Buenos Aires, across the Atlantic, where it was often used to purchase slaves. The Portuguese sent shipments of silver around Africa to the Portuguese colony at Goa in western India, where it was pooled together with silver from other sources for the trip to China. In a third route, the silver would be traded or smuggled to Amsterdam or London, and then brought to China via their East India trading companies to purchase goods for export to Europe. It's not that all the silver went to China, but the constant hum of that Ming silver vacuum and the potential for profit pulled American silver in from all directions. Between 1550 and 1640, the silver trade also brought huge amounts of wealth to Europe. The Habsburgs themselves took their royal fifth on everything that wasn't smuggled. Profits from American silver and the trade to Ming China paid for the Spanish Armada and its attempted invasion of England. It financed war against the Ottomans across the Mediterranean. It financed the consolidation of the Spanish-American colonies and the conquest of the Philippines. American silver paid for Spain's wars against the Dutch Republic and paid for the armies that ravaged Europe during the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648. We'll never know exactly how much silver flowed into China during the silver boom. I've seen all kinds of estimates that vary based on sources and the assumptions that they used. The most comprehensive studies I've found estimate that between 1571 and 1635, the flow of silver from Europe to Asia was around 150 tons a year, much of which originated at Potosi and other New World mines, but some of which was mined in Germany and other parts of Europe. Another 137 tons a year went directly from Spanish America to Manila and on to China. Add it all up, and that's over 18,000 tons of silver during this period. That's the weight of 89 Boeing 747 airplanes, moved from one side of the globe to the other by raw muscle and wind power. American silver transformed the world's silver supply. Between 1500 and 1800, silver production in colonial Peru and Mexico was, conservatively, 150,000 tons. It's 80% of the total world production. Potosi was the most important in source until the 1640s, after which silver production in Mexico outstripped it. Worldwide economic expansion and growth during these three transformative centuries was lubricated with silver and other raw materials produced in the Americas mostly on the backs of Native American and African labor. Potosi and other American silver mines 
weren't the only source of silver flowing into China, of course. Japanese silver mines, particularly the Iwami Gizan mine, which was discovered in 1523, supplied huge amounts of silver to China during the silver century. Total silver exports from Japan to China between 1560 and 1640 averaged at least 10 tons a year, though I've had trouble getting good data on this point. There were at least a few years where silver shipments from Japan to China rivaled the Manila silver trade, so that's more like 130 tons a year. It's hard to track down exactly how much silver was flowing from Japan to China because we don't have great sources and because so much of it was smuggled, meaning that records were even less likely to survive. Following the voyages under the Yongli Emperor we talked about last episode, the Ming implemented a new policy, the quote-unquote not even a little plank is allowed to drift to sea policy. Overseas foreign trade was forbidden by the central government. Foreigners still came and brought tribute to the empire, but its own citizens were forbidden from sailing abroad. As you can probably guess, this didn't end trade, but turned traders into smugglers and pirates. Chinese merchants, especially from Fujian province, set up shop in Japan, the Ryoku Islands, and elsewhere in Southeast Asia. By the 1550s, pirates based in Japan, fueled by profits from illicit trade, were wrecking havoc and raiding the Chinese coast from the mouth of the Yellow River south to Guangzhou. The Ming launched anti-piracy campaigns in response, which achieved some success. They also began allowing 150 ships from Fujian to trade abroad every year. In 1557, the Ming allowed a new barbarian tribe, the Portuguese, to set up shop on a small, relatively uninhabited peninsula near Guangzhou. Daniel tribute payments from other groups were already being sent to Guangzhou, so it made sense to allow these new barbarians, who had to come from so far away, to stay and use the port to stockpile goods that could then be ferried into Guangzhou once a year at their assigned time. Over the following years, the leased territory became the city of Macau. Macau wasn't the only new city the Portuguese founded to facilitate their trade with the Ming Empire. The port city of Nagasaki, Yes, that Nagasaki, was founded in 1571 as a port for Portuguese ships to dock and trade with the permission of the local Japanese leader. Nagasaki lies on the western shore of the island of Kyushu, the southernmost of the large Japanese islands, and about as close as China as you can get in Japan. Nagasaki was also pretty close to the Iwami Ginzan silver mine. Japanese ships were still banned from visiting China because of that whole piracy thing, and the Chinese traders were also banned from visiting Japan, although there was still plenty of smuggling and indirect trade between the two countries. Merchants from both places established settlements throughout Southeast Asia to facilitate indirect trade, sort of how someone in Miami might fly to Mexico City in order to fly to Cuba. The Chinese-Japanese relationship deteriorated further when a Japanese army invaded Korea twice in the 1590s, Korea being an ally and tribute-paying protectorate of Ming. So, the Portuguese, with their big, sturdy ships, became important intermediaries. They found that Chinese silks were very popular in Japan and used them to purchase silver bullion at Nagasaki. They also imported Chinese porcelain and other manufactured products, as well as items from India, such as Bengal tigers, peacocks, and cloth. 
enslaved people from Korea, Japan, and China, often prisoners of war, were also traded by the Portuguese. All of these goods and people were used to purchase silver for re-export to China. One side note that I find interesting is many of the ships used to transport goods between Macau and Nagasaki were built in India using tropical teak wood, which was much better suited for building the large Portuguese caracks than wood from Europe. Profit from the silver trade had a big impact on Japan. The Tokugawa shogunate, which controlled the Iwami Ginzan mine, used mining profits to defeat hundreds of rival daimo and consolidate power in Japan, and also to finance that aforementioned invasion of Korea. They also heavily invested in agriculture and urban infrastructure at home. By 1630, the Ming economy had been running on the bimetallic system for a long time. Copper coins were used for local trade, and silver for longer distance and international exchange. All tax payments had been converted to silver. If a farmer needed to pay his land tax, he brought the copper coins he'd earned selling at the local market to his money changer and bought silver with them. In 1630, he got about a tile of silver per string of thousand coins. This was more or less what silver had cost his entire life, as well as the life of his father and grandfather before him. 1,000 copper coins for one tile of silver. But then something weird started happening. A few years went by, and now it costs 1,200 copper per tile of silver. And then 1,400 coppers per tile of silver. And 1,500. Then the next year, 1,750. By 1643, it cost 3,000 coppers for a tile of silver. This price change effectively meant that taxes on the rural peasantry tripled in just over a decade. This, on top of no fewer than seven tax increases that the Ming imposed from 1618 to 1639. Critical items like salt and metal tools, which were often imported from other regions of the empire, also shot up in price as they were traded across provinces and thus their prices were denominated in silver. It was a massive general financial panic and mega depression all rolled into one. In 1646, Two years after the Ming Dynasty collapsed, it cost our farmer friend 6,000 coppers per tile of silver. So what happened? Well, there was a lot going on. The 1630s and 40s were a bad time across the globe. It was an era that some historians call a quote-unquote general crisis. Whether this is a helpful way to think about the period, I'm not sure, and it's a question I hope to come back to in future episodes. But it is definitely a period of crisis in China. In these decades, China experienced generally drier and colder weather than normal, which reduced crop yields. Grain prices skyrocketed and famine spread. But droughts, flooding, and disease are a constant presence in the human experience. And a problem states, including the Ming, had faced many times without collapsing. So, bad weather and temporary climate change may have played a part in the fall of the Ming, but it isn't a sufficient explanation to describe their failure. Some of the worst weather came after the collapse of the Ming in the second half of the 17th century, and the new Qing state grew only stronger, even if their subjects continued to suffer. In nearby Japan, which experienced the same kind of climactic disruptions, the new shogunate survived. The Ming did not. And I think the silverization of the Ming economy 
and a collapse in the supply of new silver is an important part of that story. Even before the crisis hit, the Ming had mismanaged their finances in the late 16th and early 17th century. Among the most pressing issues was the cost of the army. By the early 17th century, the cost of the Ming army, which was now mostly mercenaries, had risen to 4 million silver tile a year, up from merely a half million in the late 1400s. This seems to be mainly driven by an increase in wages, from 6 tile a year in the 1550s to 18 in the early 1600s. So, the Ming weren't in great shape anyways, and then the silver stopped coming. The problems started halfway around the world, in the boomtown of Potosi. Street fighting between the Basques and Catalans erupted into near-civil war in the 1620s. A giant flood in 1626 wiped out half of the mines and killed hundreds. That was followed by a drought, then more floods, and then a measles outbreak. Silver production dropped. There was also a great deal of fraud and debasement at the mint in Potosi, which Chinese traders noticed quickly, and they began rejecting shipments of silver coins from the Potosi mint. In 1634, King Philip IV of Spain announced new restrictions on what could be shipped from Spanish America to Manila. Spanish officials launched a crackdown of illegal trade out of Acupoco, much of which was financed by smuggling silver. The effect was felt immediately across the Pacific. Spanish traders in Manila didn't receive enough silver to buy the goods they wanted. Probably since they had been trading for decades, Chinese merchants extended them credit and kept selling to them for a few years. They tried to keep things going as normal. But the silver never came, and after a couple of years, both the Spanish and Chinese merchants were ruined. The disruption and lack of profit during these years may have contributed to the outbreak of violence in the winter of 1639-40, in which Spanish soldiers massacred 20,000 Chinese residents of Manila. Though a similar event had taken place a few decades before, so the relationship may not be there. Either way, there was a massacre, and the trade links between China and Manila were over for a while. To make matters worse from a silver trading perspective, Portuguese traders operating out of Macau stopped visiting Manila in 1642 after learning that Portugal had launched a rebellion at the end of 1640, ending decades of union between Spain and Portugal. In 1637, a group of Japanese around Nagasaki many of them Catholic peasants, launched a revolt against the Tokugawa shogunate. They were crushed after a year of fighting. As part of retribution, the shogun cracked down on Catholicism and its European adherents and missionaries. By 1639, Japan had closed its borders and expelled the Portuguese merchants from Nagasaki, cutting off one of the main routes of silver from Japan to China. One of two things seems to have happened in China through the 1630s, as the supply of silver and the trade economy collapsed. First, if you were one of those traders that had extended credit to Spanish traders, you were left bankrupt. But the middlemen who traded in Manila weren't not the producers themselves and had their own suppliers to pay. Suppliers who had themselves extended credit while they waited for the flow of silver to start back up. And they had their own suppliers and on and on through the entire Ming economy. And they were all hurt if not ruined, by the end of the silver shipments. The rich and powerful, who weren't immediately left bankrupt, hoarded their remaining silver. And the more silver that they hoarded, the more valuable silver became, which led to more hoarding. 
Huge amounts of silver disappeared from circulation. This promoted a rush of counterfeiting copper coins. Credit markets seized up, food prices soared, and the market for many cash crops and manufactured goods collapsed. The prices of anything that had been imported over long distances rose with the price of silver, as silver was the currency of choice between provinces. In many places, this included staples like salt, clothes, and metal tools and implements. Regions that focused on producing goods like silk, cotton, and metal goods for export to other regions of China or abroad suffered as their customers could no longer afford what they made. This is why it kept getting more and more expensive for the farmer from the earlier example to buy silver in order to pay his taxes. Silver became more scarce, so it increased in value, which decreased the relative value of everything else. If one year's harvest sold for 10 tael worth of silver in 1630, the same harvest 15 years later was worth less than 2 tael. Taxes were still denominated in silver, and they weren't going down. Nearly all of the income and savings of people in the lower classes was denominated in copper, so the increased price of silver wrecked their finances. Suffice it to say, many people just stopped paying their taxes, and so tax receipts plummeted. To make matters worse for the Ming, regional government officials also hoarded money instead of spending it or passing it along to Beijing, thus removing even more silver from the economy and denying the central government the revenue it needed to stay afloat and pay its soldiers. The scholar Gu Yanwu, who was a young man during the crisis, called this a, quote, depression in a year of good harvest, end quote. There was some bad weather and poor harvests, as I mentioned earlier, but at least in Gu's view, this wasn't the primary driver of the crisis. The end of the Ming Dynasty didn't have a single cause. It wasn't just the silver. But I think understanding the nature of the silver crisis is quite important. It was a new kind of crisis, one that relied on a global network of trade, supply, and demand. It was a product of the new world that was taking shape. Next episode, we'll move to meet the Manchu Qing Dynasty, which invaded and conquered the old Ming territory in a bloody, decades-long campaign of military conquest. The new Qing Empire would oversee unprecedented growth in both the geographic size, population, and wealth of China. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a 5-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews help other listeners find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod. Thanks. Thanks.